welcome to the God's Goodness Podcast, where our mission is to encourage as well as highlight God's goodness and modern day miracles. We are your hosts, Josh and Shelley Hankins. Today we have with us a very special guest. The Holy Spirit has led him to us, and you're going to be blown away by the what he has to say. And with that, we welcome Jim Said to the show. And we're going to ask him to open up with a little prayer, and then we'll get things rolling. Shelley and Josh, thank you so much for having me and giving me this opportunity. We will open with, Dear Lord, thank you for the opportunity to witness to your powerful grace and mercy. You tell us, dear Lord, we know in Luke, the Holy Spirit will give us the words at the time that we need. We ask today that this testimony and this conversation land softly on the ears of the listeners in an effort to provide hope and salvation to those who are seeking it. Mm. We ask this, dear Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 So where would you like to start, Jim? Well, I guess I'll start just to get myself a little momentum with um, where I come from. So I'm a Western Pennsylvania, small steel town, valley, born and raised about an hour north of here, Shenango Valley, Sharon, Farrell, Hermitage area. Led a, had a wonderful, wonderful childhood. My father worked for Westinghouse. My mother was a nurse, and we lived in one of those communities where it was just one matchbox house after another, after another, after another, and the neighborhood was filled with children, and it was just a wonderful, wonderful childhood for me. I have two sisters, Mary Kay and Beth, and we were typical siblings, two sisters against one brother growing up, but we are so tight and connected right now. I just love them dearly. So my childhood was essentially full of love and activity, uneventful with regards to darkness or damages or anything like that. I, I had a very wonderful childhood. So, okay, high school, my issue became socially using drugs and alcohol, which is such a common story, mm -hmm. but it was social use. You know, I went through uh, high school. I actually went to a small school over in the middle of West, uh, Pennsylvania, Lock Haven State, to play football. I got very discouraged with my studies, didn't feel like doing it after a year, so I uh, enlisted in the United States Navy. I was a, a Navy corpsman stationed with the Marines in Camp Lejeune, so a Navy corpsman is, uh, is essentially the same as an Army medic, medic stationed with the Marines. Did a lot of traveling, you know, Mediterranean cruises, Carib cruises, all the while, though, experimenting with drugs and really getting to the point where my drug use was damaging to my life. And I would go through periods of times when I had it in check and then go through periods of times where I was just simply out of control. But this was a time pre-drug testing in the military, so yeah. I was able to skate through without having to worry. Matter of fact, the day that I was discharged, I was walking out on the compound and it was the first muster ever for compound drug testing the day I left. So lucky. Or blessed. Oh, blessed for sure. And that's going to become evident as I get further along into this story here. Yes, the Lord has been very, very gracious with me in my life. I have done and experienced so many things that should have brought my life to an early end, or could have. At any rate, I've been in business my entire life, okay? So I led these, this double lifestyle. I had a dual life. 
I went through some surgeries and things in my younger years, like in my early 20s, back surgery, knee surgery, etc., and started taking painkillers to manage the pain. And it became something that transitioned from pain relief to, I kind of like this, right? I like how this makes me feel. I like how it um, kind of relieve some of the pressures that I was feeling in my life. And over the years, and I mean for a solid 20 years, I was a, an opiate addict. And not just taking a couple pills here and there, I was heavily into the Oxycontin and fentanyl, taking doses because of my tolerance at the time that would kill three, four people. Mm, that's a long time, too. It's a long time. I functioned in business for a period of time, and it just got to the point where my decision-making became very skewed. My priorities changed. I also have to tell you that not only was I not walking with God, but I denied Him. He continued to embrace me throughout this in my denial. At some point in time in the 2000s, that was it. I, I got into criminality, and I began trafficking in narcotics. I left my job. I took a little consulting job here and there so that I can be really where I wanted to be, which was in the darkness. That's where I wanted to be. I thought, that's where you thrive. Like dirt. Like dirt. And I was feeling a lot of shame. I was experiencing a lot of guilt. I had a son and I was feeling separation, but it didn't seem to stop me. Matter of fact, not only did it not seem to stop me, it did not stop me from just discontinued behavior. So I was set up, I'll use those words, thankfully, thankfully now I say this by a confidential informant and the Pennsylvania State Police Drug Task Force arrested me, trafficking in cocaine, and because there were some jurisdictional issues with the arrest, I was thinking, I'm getting off, right? That's how I lived my life. I'll get away with this. I'll get away with that. I'll get away with this. But it became a federal case. So they turned it over to the feds. And at the time, they were saying, listen, all you have to do is give us a name, give us activity, give us this, give us that, somewhere, someone we can go after with your testimony behind it. And I did not do that. I, I just refused to do that. I did offer, honestly, and this is just an example of how really fragmented this war on drugs has been for so many years. I said, listen, I drove back and forth to Nogales, Mexico, and brought drugs across the border. I know the network. I can teach you and tell you how that is. And they said, no, that's not in our jurisdiction. So I went to trial. And I wound up with a 130-month federal prison sentence. So that's 10 years, 10 months. Hmm. Here's where my God story takes off. It's always been there, but here's where it takes off. I was in Allegheny County Jail. Uh, they took me out of the federal courtroom in handcuffs and a suit, and I was uh, in a holding cell in Allegheny County Jail. It was surreal. They took me upstairs to an observation pod to make sure that there were no suicidal tendencies or anything like that. When I went through intake and they asked me about my drug use, 
Uh, was there any drug use? Is there anything we should be concerned about with regards to withdrawal, et cetera, et cetera? I said, no, don't worry about me. I'm going to be fine. So for those of us who have been through withdrawal before from an opiate, especially the massive amounts that I was taking, it is, you would rather be, I would have rather been dead than to go through that. So I was sitting on the floor in severe withdrawal in a jail cell in Allegheny County, just not knowing what was going to happen. My head felt like it was going to split open. I was eternally sick to my stomach. I couldn't get, first of all, the bed's only four feet away from the toilet anyways in these cells, but I couldn't get any more than two feet away. I stayed on the floor. It was that bad. And one day I was in the cell by myself and all of a sudden they assigned me a cellmate. So this fella came walking in and he took one look at me and he says, brother, you're in a bad way. He said, I'm here. I'm here for you, man. You want to talk about it? I've been there, right? And at the time, to be honest with you, I was just wishing he would disappear. I mean, I, I didn't want, I didn't even want to speak a word. I didn't want to hear anything. I didn't want to speak anything. Now, how long is, was it until he came in? I was in there by myself for two days. Okay. Uh, on the third day, Jasper was his name, entered the cell. And it was literally a matter of minutes before he sat down and pulled out the little Gideon's Bible that they issued to us when we were assigned a cell and just started reading, reading scripture. And once again, I was really in no condition to interact with anyone at this time. But Jasper continued to read scripture and then he began to interpret scripture as it pertained to his life which mimicked mine very closely. And, you know, at some point in time, I finally got up in my bunk and I would look over and he would be at the little metal table we have in the jail cell reading and lifting his head and then reading and lifting his head. And I never knew how to get into a relationship with God through scripture or any other means, but he was reading and meditating on the word. And I started feeling like I needed to, what does he have? Where is this coming from? He's here with me in a prison. So he came from the Badlands in Philadelphia. And for anyone who knows what that is, it's North Philly and it's a nasty rough place. He had a father who was serving life term for homicide. He had two brothers who were killed. So he, he lived that life. And I started talking to him. I started asking him, tell me what you're doing tell me what you're doing. I was born Catholic. I believed in God, but I never had a relationship. I never knew that. That's key. It's key. And and I, I was not walking with the Lord, obviously. You heard my the beginning of the story. So we begin reading scripture together. And listen, I start feeling better. This feeling of calm and peace came over me. And we continued to talk. And, and you know, after another couple days, I said, Jasper, I want this, like, I want, I want what you have. I want this relationship. And we prayed together and I accepted the Lord at that moment as my savior. And the beauty of this is I was in a place of turmoil, of very dark place in this jail cell. And I felt a peace that I had never felt before. It was overwhelming. 
And I began to pray in the way that Jasper prayed, how he taught me to build relationship with God. And I prayed for restoration. I prayed for redemption. I prayed for reconnection to all the people who I've damaged in their lives with my actions. I prayed for new connection. And I began to pray for others, which was very strange to me. I, you know, I, it just it was something new, but it was something that I knew I was supposed to do. And slowly, in this place, now I was transferred at some point after my sentencing hearing to a federal institution over in Ohio, Elkton. And it was um, a higher security level. I had a long time, so they can't put you at a lower security level. I continued to experience this peace and, and this restoration and the redemption was coming. And I began to develop a new connection with my son, who, who by the way, uh, my son, Nate, is 30 years old. We adopted him and brought him home when he was one day old. And we had always been so close, and I was feeling so much guilt over what I had done. And we reconnected, and he, he was so merciful to me, this little guy. But I left him at his very formidable time. You know, he was 15 years old. You need a father in your life, you know. And I was gone until he was 23 almost. But we stayed close, and we visited, and we, we did all these things. Then I relate my time in prison to a, I, I often say if I ever wrote a book, the title would be Razor Wire and Rainbows, because that's what it was. It was beauty. It was peace in my relationship with the Lord amidst a lot of really difficult things taking place around me. It is what you think it is, okay? But you don't have to live there while you're there. And I became connected to so many good men who were walking with Christ like I was, and it became a loving, spiritually fulfilled place to be. So fast forward to 26, I, w I went in in 28, in 2008, I came home in 2016, the end of the year was the end of my sentence. And my prayer began to change. I said, to, I said, uh, dear Lord, I only pray for one thing. I pray that your will be done in my life. That's what I want now. Use me. And I can only imagine, you know, that it was then that he sat back and said, now I'm going to show you what I can do. Okay. And slowly and deliberately, I felt my this tapestry was being woven in my life from so many different places. Prayers, things were, he was answering prayers that I wasn't praying. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. So, 100%. Yeah. So the Lord was answering prayers that I never prayed. When I came home, I went to work for an, a re-entry initiative down on the south side in Pittsburgh in a warehouse. And we helped men and women coming home from incarceration, find employment, get some stability, connect with some folks who can really help them, stuff like that. So here's a prayer that I never prayed that God answered for me. I was in the warehouse one day, and this woman came in with two council people from Clareton, Pennsylvania. 
And the fellow I was working with, Dan, came over and introduced her to me. He said, hey, this is Joyce. She is trying to put something together to help people. Some type of a halfway house, a re-entry home, a three-quarter home, whatever the case may be. These are two council people who are in support of that in the community of Clareton. So I said, hey, I want to be involved. Let me help with this. I can, I can recall some of my business acumen and maybe make some things happen for her. So we connected. We had a few meetings. We would meet and have coffee. Joyce is a retired state parole agent, 25 and a half years, uh, 22 of which were spent in Clareton. And Joyce would become my wife. So God's sense of humor, right? The ex-con and the retired state parole agent. I mean, I mean that's how he works. Uh, it, this would, He put us together, and we began this journey, and, and over time um, fell in love. But all the while, we began working on what eventually become the Cornerstone Residence for Veterans in Clareton, Pennsylvania, which we spent five years in court trying to get an occupancy permit. And all the way to the state Supreme Court, here's God's unanswered prayer that turns out to be perfect timing. We prayed all the way through that, can we please have resolution for this? And God said, yeah not till I'm ready. So for five years we fought, and in the meantime we had a fire that burnt right up through the middle of it just after we had renovated it, so we had to start all over again, and we did this all on our own dime. It was just really a God mission that we knew we were going to be provided for. Finally, the state Supreme Court, just less than a year ago, ruled in our favor, and that was the end of it. And we also have the, had the place uh, completely renovated, and I'm happy to say that we have veterans in there now who we are helping, and I'll be going to visit them this afternoon when I leave here. Here's a retired state parole agent, Joyce. Now, I know folks who have come from service like that, and unfortunately, dealing with da that damage and, that, and the population like that, they're, they're, they're jaded, or it's very, they're very tainted, and they just want nothing to do with it. She came home, she came out of that wanting to, I have more to do. Hmm. So we give all the glory to God for where we are right now with regards to the Cornerstone Residence. So when we were going through this, I thought, well, I should probably pray for some provision here because this is kind of taxing. And so my prayer changed. I said, dear Lord, you have us on a mission. We need provision so that we can sustain this. And he told me, you got to get back in a business. You, this is your responsibility. You are responsible for this. And so at 60, I went back into business. So we have a local roofing company, Trilink, and he has been so merciful and so provisional in our lives. We want for nothing because of the Lord's intervention. We don't have a lot, but we want for nothing, and that's beautiful. So we're very encouraged with where things are going with, with uh, Cornerstone. Another episode in my life that is could only be explained by God or by God's intervention is, I told you I adopted Nate and brought him home when he was a day old. So when I came home 
for my incarceration, I said, hey, uh, Nate was, came down to live with us, Joyce and I. I said, let's, um, let's do this 23andMe. Let's find out what your lineage is, right? So, so we did it, and ironically enough, his mimics mine very closely. So fast forward a couple years down the road, Joyce calls me. She was visiting her sister up in Canada, and she said she told me a couple stories about people who connected to family and relatives through 23andMe. And I said, well, that's crazy because I got Lebanese on one side of my family. I have Italian and Irish on the other side. We're huge. Like we, I, I, but I don't have any relatives on this thing. So she walked me through how to make it public. So I did. I hit the button. The next morning when I got up and looked at it, I had 1,900-some relatives across the country, hmm. first, second, third cousins. At the top of the list, I have a son, biological son who I never knew about. I dated a girl when I first came home from the Navy. She got pregnant, and she never told anyone. She went and gave birth and put him up for adoption. Hmm. So he was adopted by a family in Cleveland, and we almost immediately began to communicate. His message was, I'm looking for my biological parents. So we connected. We met. Four years now, downtown Pittsburgh, he came in town. I met his parents, wonderful people. His name is Nate. Hmm. Both parents, myself and my first wife and his parents, named our children Nathan because it means gift from God. So I got to tell you, I have my two Nates. So we call him Nate P.A. and Nate Ohio. So Nate P.A. just got married. Nate Ohio is getting married in May. They are best men at each other's wedding. Far out. Awesome. So come on now. Everybody just loves on everybody. And my stepdaughter, Megan, uh, who we had a, a little text conversation about back and forth. I adore her. And then Nate P.A. Cascade, his wife, and Nate Ohio, Lisa, his future wife, I just adore. So we play golf together. We go out together. We eat dinner. We just have, we, it's just a wonderful, wonderful event in my life. So, You know, for a second there, I thought you were going to say that the, the biological kid was the one you adopted and had no idea. That would really be the only other twist that you could add to this story. <laughs> I thought, that's for sure where he's going with that. So that's my story. All the way through my life, God has been such an, all the way through, from the, from the very beginning. He's been instrumental in the fact that when I was turning from him, he was chasing me down. And when I was in that prison cell, he, he attacked me. Because hey, like you couldn't run anywhere. That's it. I've had enough. I'm putting you here. We'll see you it's run your now. Time out. Pay attention, you know. And he said to me, he said, look, you, you know, you're bullheaded, you're stubborn, you're thick-skulled, you, you don't recognize these blessings I keep putting in your life, so now you're going to trip over them. And that's what he, and, that, and he put them right at my feet. And, you know, my connection now with men of God in my life, I will give uh, Locking Arms men a plug, uh, Leo Wisniewski, very instrumental in my life. It's just a group of Christian men who gather and worship and glorify God. That's about all we do. Is there something wrong with that? No, there's nothing wrong with that. We live for it. So there you have it. You know, going back to when you said you were in a dark place and you had abandoned your son, essentially, 
to, to be in this dark place because you, you thrived in the darkness, you know, the mushroom treatment. And you said you really, you didn't want to do that, but at the same time, the addiction yeah. was so prevalent. And I think that's important to note because I've heard so many people that don't know the grip of addiction say things like, well, you've got a kid. Why can't you just do this for your kid? Why don't you know better? I, I know somebody who's been Narcan in front of their kid three times, mm-hmm. right? And so one of these times it's not going to work, you know, and that's not motivation enough to stop the addiction. And I don't think people understand just the grip that addiction has. And the last guest that we had, we talked about addiction and recovery and, and how difficult it is to find recovery from addiction without Jesus. To me, it's impossible, not just difficult, because... I didn't feel like I abandoned my son, but I did, but I didn't feel like it. So as addicts, we justify everything that we do. We justify our behavior. We justify our drug use. We justify our criminality. We justify everything. We justify pain towards others. There's no accountability when you're active in addiction. There's absolutely none. No, because then you have to admit that you have a problem. Of course you do. And I've seen guys admit that they have a problem over and over and over again. It's that powerful. So they, admit, I have a problem. I, well, let's get you to treatment. Let's take care of this. Let's see if we can help you restore yourself and uh, get back into some pro-social living. And two months later, I get a phone call from the same guy. I have a problem. Yes, you do. Let's try to get you into It's that. I used to think that I could do it myself. I would go and rent a hotel room for four or five days in the hopes that I could detox myself, white-knuckle detox, and it never worked. Third day in, I'm on the phone. i got to get something for this illness. Yeah, addiction is a powerful, powerful thing. It, it destroys families. It destroys lives. Mm-hmm. I thank you so much for sharing that. I thank you for the courage it takes to share that story because I know the enemy likes to use shame and guilt and fear to keep us from telling the things that, that need said. And I know that when our sin is brought into the light, that the enemy has no place to hide because he's, you know, he's, he loves his shadows. He loves the dark places. Yeah. And I appreciate that you were willing to say this on a podcast where potentially many people can hear this and know about resources. And, and I hope that they feel uplifted, that, that they know that they're not alone, right? Or if they have a family member, they, they have a better idea of how to approach this situation for that family member because, you know, I'm an EMT and I work with all of addiction and it is an ugly thing. And you would be surprised how many people can keep it a secret from their family. Well, you might not be surprised. I really wouldn't. <laughs> but I, but, but, but you and the listeners might be surprised <laughs> to know how, how easy they can keep some of this stuff yeah. hidden from their family. Yes, yes. It lurks in dark corners. And the funny thing that you, know, you mentioned that, Josh, is... I thought I was fooling everybody, but the only one I was fooling was myself. Mm-hmm. Because once you get to a certain point, once I got to a certain point with my addiction and with my behavior, it was evident to all those around me. I just lived in denial. So, and that's denial leads to isolation, which leads to really that's where the damage starts, that's uh, when you're isolating. And did you serve the entirety of your sentence, or did you have... My original sentence was 130 months. The mandatory minimum in my category with the federal system is 120 months, which is 10 years. At one point, the Congress enacted something that says you can't 
sentence over mandatory minimums for certain offenses, and mine was one. So they dropped it down all the way down to 120 months. <laughs> so of that 120 months, I did an intensive community drug treatment for a year. And I actually served as a mentor to the community while I did that time there. And I received a year off my sentence. So essentially, on a, what was a 10-year, 10 10-month 10 sentence, reduced to 120 months, I got down to eight and a half years with good time and then another year off for, for my drug treatment. So seven and a half years. Actually, closer to eight is what I, what I ended up serving. Still a long time, but better than... It's a long time. And, and, and I'll tell you, when you spend that amount of time incarcerated, and this is something that is really important to understand, when men and women come home from lengthy incarcerations, they, I'll speak for myself, I felt like I had the scarlet letter. Even though people did not know me, or for those who did not know me, I felt in some way less substantial than society, even though I was trying to be pro-social mm-hmm. in my actions and in my and what I what I had done. And that's a very, very common thing for folks coming home from incarceration. And it's actually one of the things that that creates this high rate of recidivism, which is reoffending, is self-worth. Where's my value to anyone who would want to put me to work? Or where, where's my value? So they revert back into criminal behavior. And yeah, 60-some percent. 60-some percent reoffenders, recidivism. That's high. That's really high. Yeah, that's high, and it's the national average. How far in your sentence before you fully embraced God? Two weeks. Two weeks. Yes. So you spent essentially almost eight years in prison. Yes. Like Peter. Yes. Learning yeah. about Jesus, loving on Jesus, yeah. and sharing Jesus with others. Here's my God story from Scripture. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any, every circumstance, I've learned the secret of plenty and hunger, of abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Mm-hmm. That's my life. Philippians. Philippians. Yeah. That's my life. Yes. And we shared, oh my gosh, you know, when you're in there in such close proximity to so many men who have experienced the same thing that you're experiencing and worse, the relationship. I'm still in touch with a lot of these men, lots of them, just like we were old military buddies, mm-hmm. my old veteran buddy. It's that type of a camaraderie when you find the right, when God's in the center of it. So, yes, that's what we did the whole time. That's awesome. I'm glad that you do that. Because... We did a lot of push-ups, too, oh, yeah, and yeah, pull-ups. Yeah. What, else, what else are you going to do? <laughs> Not much. Played softball, basketball, you know, all that anything to keep you occupied. Yeah, they don't give you a whole lot of stuff. No, but they do want you to stay occupied in there just to keep you, you know, idle hands. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I've heard that phrase, yeah. idle hands are the devil's workshop. Yes, yes, and they cause problems in prison. Idle hands. Yes. Guys look for other things to do. It's you can find out just how creative people can be. Amen. <laughs> Thank you so much for being on the, the podcast. We really appreciate your story. We really appreciate your testimony. I love to hear about Jesus. I'd love to hear about Jesus reaching people in the lowest points. And I hope that it encourages other people that have similar experiences or, you know, maybe not identical, but somewhere along the lines where they feel like the least of these, mm-hmm. right? And I've said this before, and I'll say it again, but I feel that you can only love Jesus as much as you love the least of these. 
And so I think we need to really lean into the people that feel marginalized. Whether they are or not is irrelevant, right? Whether they feel it mm-hmm. and help spread the love of Jesus, to not be ashamed of the gospel, to, to lift people up, to encourage people and let them know that there is a better way. And that way is through the life of Jesus Christ. Amen. So I really appreciate your story. I really appreciate being on here. I appreciate your bravery through it all, despite the fact that it wasn't bravery that put you in it. No, it was not. No, but it's definitely it's definitely helps. I believe in your story. I believe that the courage that God has put you, he did not give you a spirit of timidness, but of boldness, right? And here you are boldly proclaiming what he's done for you, yeah. despite what you tried to sabotage him in doing. Did I ever? Oh boy, I'll say. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you. When you think you're down and out, God's not done with you yet. Yes. I mean, I was, yeah, please, anyone who's in the type of situation that we're talking about with regards to addiction or damage or any type of physical abuse, whatever the case may be, seek help, seek God, and there is hope. There is, and I'm living proof that he will work in your life. Mm. Amen. It's so good. And then you have greater relationships because of Jesus. Yes. Amen, you do. Oh, so good. Thank you for coming on and sharing that with us. It was my pleasure. Thank you. If this episode has been a blessing to you, we ask that you share it with somebody so it can be an encouragement to others. And also, we have a fundraising campaign to help us with the audio editing expenses, and that's on givesendgo.com, and we look up God's Goodness Podcast, and you can make your donation there. And thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Thank you.